Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Hello and good morning, and you're very welcome to today's Signpost webinar. We hope you're keeping safe and well wherever you're joining us from today. Uh, the decline in farming activities and the impact this can have on environmentally significant habitats was the focus of an innovative project known as the Sustainable Uplands Agriculture Environment Scheme, also known as SUIS. The project was the first of its kind in Ireland and was successful in securing a funding allocation of 1.95 million euros under the first round of the European Innovation Partnerships for Agriculture. And to tell us more about the project, I'm delighted to be joined by Declan Byrne, who's the project manager of the SUIS project, and also Dr. Catherine Kina, who's Countryside Management Specialist with Chagask. Good morning, Declan and Catherine. Morning. Hello, morning. So, Declan, you're um, just returning from your your uh, leadership role in the, the SUIS project, and uh, you're back working with Chagask now. But maybe you could tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about your own background and how, how you got involved in this project. Yeah, well, I suppose the um, first thing is I'm from Wicklow, so I tend to be interested in all things to do with Wicklow and that. So I've always had an interest in the hills. And uh, when I started work with Chagas here back in 2000, um, dealing with reps and that, I would have been seeing what was happening on the hills and the way they're being farmed and the changes in farming and stuff. And uh, unfortunately, just one person on your own is not... Uh, you don't get much opportunity to do anything about it or t- that. So in 2011, I was looking to get involved with Wicklow Uplands Council, who are a representative body for the Dublin Wicklow Mountains. And they were starting to look at it. So we came together, we formed a committee and uh, worked on it, trying to figure out what we, what we wanted to do in that and uh, put a lot of time and effort. But if it, we were lucky enough then in 2017, the EIP projects came along and we got funding for the five-year EIP project. So that's kind of where it came from. Nice. And you're just at the end of that five years now. Yeah, I was um, seconded across as project manager. I was lucky enough to Chagas to allow me to go across. Um, it was important for us to have somebody coming in to manage the project who knew the background, who knew kind of the people who were uh, local and uh, knew what the issues were. And Chagas allowed me to be seconded across. And uh, I'm back into the regular role here in Chagas now again since the 1st of January. Okay, very good. Great. So you're going to sh- uh, share with us some, some of the lessons that you've learned during that project. So Declan, we'll hand over to you. Okay, so just um, the lessons learned, recommendations from the SUAS EAP project. Uh, the first thing I say about the SUAS project is when we started this, uh, our number one priority was to learn, to learn how to support farmers. It wasn't just about the farmers who were joining the scheme with us or joining the project. We wanted to, to learn how we can uh, support them in the long term. And our main focus was on the wider farming community, all the rest of the farmers there throughout the Wicklow Dublin Mountains and indeed across mountains across the whole country. So it was never just about the farmers who were joining the scheme with us. Uh, you see here just a, a list of all the various partners who um, were part of the project and supported us throughout it. And uh, as Mark said, it was funded through the Department of Agriculture EIP funding. So rather than spending too much time on that, just to give you a slight overview here of the um, the, the, the what, what farmers and sites and stuff we had, we had ended up with a total of four, 14 commonages in the project. They varied in size from 58 hectares to 1,025 hectares. And in terms of number of shareholders, varied from two up as far as 10. And we also took in non-commonage areas because in Wicklow, there's a, a mosaic a kind of ownership between uh, commonage and non-commonage areas. So you can't include one without the other. So we brought in a total of 11 sites that are non-commonage and they varied in size from six to 1,745 hectares. So the first thing I'll say about that is uh, when people ask us, 
we don't talk about averages because averages uh, mean nothing to, to us because there's such a large variation in the size and uh, numbers of shareholders and stuff like that. Just in terms of the total numbers of farmers and that, that were involved, uh, we had a total of 7,143 hectares in the project at the end and a total of 75 uh, farmers involved with us. So just to move on then about, I suppose, what are our innovations and what do we do? Uh, we, at start, we didn't really know what we were doing. We kind of had ideas of what we wanted to do. So uh, our theory was that, look, at, we'd try something, we'd learn from that and we'd move on. So what we did was we took the farmers in over three phases. Starting 2018, we took in uh, three commonages and one long commonage area. 2019, using those learnings, we brought in uh, six, uh, six more sites. And then in 2021, we brought in uh, seven more colleges and eight non-college areas. So all the time, it was about learning what we, or using what we've learned from this, the previous tranche of farmers to try and make things better and evolve over time. So I suppose the first thing I have to talk about is the um, college groups. That was the most innovative part of our project. And what it was is, or what basically, if we're dealing with people on college most of you know what colleges are, there's more than one person farm in the same area. And we've tried for since 1994 when Reps first came out to, to get a handle on how we manage these and work with farmers. And a lot of times you end up with there's two or three farmers doing good things, others not engaged and maybe some doing bad. So what we felt was, look, at, we have to talk to them all together. We have to bring them together as a group. There's one plan for the whole college. Uh, they all sign up to it. They all uh, agree by it. So what we did was we formed these groups. Now, there were kind of formal groups. We, we sat down with them. We talked about the farmers groups and we each one of them formed their own uh, constitution. Now, basically the constitution, it's a, a list of rules of how they operate. So what we wanted was... Uh, that they would be able to have these conversations, we'd be able to deal with issues and stuff like that. Because if we just sat down with somebody, got them all signed a farm, our fear was that the first time something complicated come along, they'd all just walk away from it and that. So this constitution contains uh, rules and regulations of how they have discussions, how they make decisions and stuff like that. And uh, I have to say that for, uh, for me, it, it, it was a massive learning we brought in an outside facilitator to help us at the start. And uh, the first group that came in, really, they were kind of guinea pigs, I suppose. But uh, what happened over time was we improved the process. And uh, at the end of the third tranche there in 2021, we have developed a step-by-step -step, step -step guide now on how to form these college groups and how to put them together. Now, in terms of how did they operate, uh, for me, it was brilliant because uh, I could bring all the farmers and the colleges together. We sit, sat down, we talked about what should be in the, the management plans, what stocking is happening on the hills. So they, as a group, uh, figure or agreed among themselves and there was one plan. The other thing that they did then was they, as a group, they were responsible for delivering it. So if there was work to be done on it, they had to sort it out among themselves. So uh, it was almost like dealing with one individual person. So the, the whole... Uh, most of those problems associated with college, when they all come together, uh, that was um, made life easy for doing the planning and that. Now, I, I thought it was a great success, obviously, but uh, what did the farmers themselves think? And for me, we had a, a training event uh, last uh, November uh, with some of the farmers and we asked them themselves and I was delighted to see coming back in. Look, the vast majority of them said that, look, these college groups do have a role in future college management and also that they do have a role in agri-environmental schemes. So that, for me, shows the positivity from the farmers and that they really bought into them. Uh, one question I constantly get asked is, what's the minimum number of shareholders? And I'm not going to sit here and give you a, a magic figure or a percentage on that, because once somebody puts a figure on this, uh, first thing, people are going to start trying to knock it and say, come up with all sorts of uh, uh, anomalies and different things in different areas to try and uh, drag it down. So the definition that we worked off of uh, was it's the minimum number of shareholders who can actually deliver on any uh, management plans uh, agreed. So 
that some sites that could be two and some sites that could be 10 or it could be 20. But if they have enough of the shareholders with them that they can do what they say they were going to do, that's enough for me. Now, I know for fitting into uh, department schemes and stuff, maybe it's a little bit vague, but from a practical point of view, that's what we want. Um, just recommendations then from our experience through the SUS project, uh, where do we go? Uh, I would say that the college groups should be supported through the cooperation projects. Uh, they have facilities within their budgets that to, to support these. Um, and it is gives us a way to, to build them up and spread them out. Uh, it should be done on a voluntary basis because look, they're very new. A lot of people don't know much about them. Uh, also, they should be linked to development management plans and used for grazing management because there's no point setting up a group just for the sake of setting it up because it's nothing to do and it, it, it's just a waste of time. But if you give that group something to do, like uh, the, the management plans or agreeing how they're going to manage the grazing and stuff like that uh, and support them. What's the benefit of doing that? Well, I suppose, number one, we want to build confidence among farmers of these communist groups because it's easy for me here in Wicklow and Dublin Mountains. Uh, all the farmers have heard about them. They probably all know somebody who's in one somewhere or other. And there's a great acceptance of it. But I know that if you go down to Kerry or Mayo or Donegal, you're not going to get the same thing. They're hearing about these things happening over in the east of the country. So if we could uh, get a number of these through the cooperation projects set up in the different mountain ranges, as it will build confidence among the farmers in those areas to see what they're like in that. And also we have to build capacity among advisors to be able to set these up and, and manage these and support these uh, groups going forward. Uh, and by the next RDP programme, hopefully we will be in a position that they will be widely uh, distributed around, around the whole country. Um, just moving on then about habitat condition, I suppose we can't uh, talk about the uplands without talking about the actual habitats. And look, we went out there, we found some great things with some very good quality habitats and that. And just there last uh, September, uh, Faith Wilson, our ecologist, we were up in Granamore and we, we had the first recording of uh, Bog Rosemary in Wicklow. So it's nice to see new things and that coming up. So that, look, there are lots of good things up there. Obviously, if there wasn't something wrong, we wouldn't be having an EIP project. So there's areas, was the one more common within Wicklow and that the eastern country is uh, this undergrazing, tall, leggy header over vast areas. And then we have the, the other ones. We have gorse, we have erosion, their own walking tracks and bits of erosion there as well. We have the bracken issue. So look, there are issues. One of the ones maybe people weren't as aware of was this erosion, we have uh, huge areas of erosion, and these are fairly dramatic pictures and that when you see them, like the bare peat and that, but we actually also have an awful lot of other areas which are in danger of becoming uh, coming into this stage, unless there's something done with them, and on a lot of our summits and uh, uh, peaks and that, so uh, quite a lot of issues there. Uh, how do we look at these um, uh, habitats. Well, our ecologist Faith Wilson, she uh, came on board and she assessed them for us using the faucet uh, method. And it's, it's a simple uh, three-step uh, um, assessment. Green there is favourable condition. The orangey colour is uh, unfavourable, inadequate, and red is bad. So it's uh, this would be fairly typical of what we found on most of our sites. So some good things, an awful lot of things are fairly not too bad, and some very bad things. And Bar one site, I think it was all in good condition, but the rest of them would have a mix of all of these. One of the other things that we did find now, and it was kind of a little bit kind of surprising to a lot of people, is uh, this is there's two actual sites that's in the Suez project there. Uh, but what we found here was these two areas, there is a real tall, leggy header. Uh, there's undergrazing and uh, virtually monoculture of header. Now, there's 120 hectares in the top one and uh, 90 hectares in the bottom area there. So they're, they're quite large areas. But right beside those and those blue areas you see marked off, we have overgrazing. So suddenly we have this undergrazing issue and right next to it, we have this overgrazing issue. Or sorry, yeah, the overgrazing issue. And then confounded on top of that, we have 
uh, the issues with Bracken coming in here right, right beside it. So rather than we kind of tend to think of these hills uh, and trying to put them into boxes and say, oh, that's overgrazed, that's undergrazed hill or whatever, there's a lot of issues going on on these hills. It's not just a mosaic of habitats, but it's also a mosaic of different issues and problems up there as well. So just uh, for recommendations from Zoos, look at the first thing we found was yeah, somebody has to go out and walk these habitats to assess them. You just haven't got a clue what's up there until you go and look, because even talking to farmers and stuff, you think you have a fair idea, but uh, until you go out there and walk them, you just don't know. Uh, a lot of our sites is multiple issues, as I say. It's not as simple as just uh, putting them into to, to pigeonholes and saying, right, that one is overgrazed, that's undergrazed. No, there's multiple issues on them, and they have to be looked at uh, to, to find those out. There are national targets for habitat condition in the uplands, uh, but we have no real vision of it to how to actually achieve that. Um, so the national target is that they should all be in favourable condition. But uh, I was just sitting down there when I put together the presentation. There's actually six government departments um, have um, responsibilities in the uplands. Obviously, we know about the Department of Agriculture, then we have the Department of, of Housing Local Government because National Parks and Wildlife Service sits in there and they're actually a large uh, landowner as well as being responsible for the, the maintenance of these SACs and SPAs. We have the County Councils also sitting in that government department and Law Pro looking at water quality in that. Then we have other departments like the Department of uh, Tourism arts, culture and sport because it's a major tourist attraction and we have those uh, sporting and recreational groups up there, the Department of Rural and Community Affairs, uh, the Department of Health and obviously the Department of Environment from Carbon Sequestration. So look, at, uh, we need them all to sit down. There's no point in one sitting down pointing fingers at the other. We, we brought out two government departments to look at uh, an issue, uh, Department of Agriculture and uh, uh, Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. And Neither one of them was uh, really responsible for it. And uh, so that's why I say we need a joined up thinking at government level to bring together all the various uh, government departments. Uh, this has to be done at landscape level because uh, um, these issues occur over large areas. Wildlife move over areas. There's no fences right up there. So livestock and that move. And the issues cover multiple areas as well. Okay, so just in terms of the management of the habitats, just a few points on that. Uh, the two main issues that determine what the condition of the habitat are is uh, inappropriate burning and grazing management. Now, inappropriate burning, I hadn't planned to say a huge amount about it, but just after the fires during the week, I said I, I can't ignore it. Uh, the first thing I say about this is I'm not just talking about one fire on a site. This is uh, going, fires which are going on over the past 20, 100, or maybe even more than that uh, years ago. Uh, I was quite disappointed on Wednesday uh, to hear government ministers and various uh, spokespeople coming out talking about, oh, we're into the, the bird nesting season now, so uh, burning has to stop. And anybody who burns after now, it's illegal and you're going to be losing money and your agri payments and all the rest. Uh, that kind of sums up the big problem for me is that we have spent the last uh, 20 years um, talking about the dates, what dates were allowed to burn and what dates were not allowed to burn. The reality is the high dose fires that occurred on Monday or Tuesday, the damage and the destruction and whatever else from them are equal to what happened on Wednesday and Thursday, regardless of the date. Now, what should we be talking about here is uh, not just the dates, but look, why do we need burning? Why is there a need for fires up in, in the uplands? If we don't, like what, what is up there? How do we control it? If we, if we don't have fire as a tool, what's going to happen to those habitats? Can they be managed? Uh, is there alternatives that we can use up there? In sewers, we've been using cutting and stuff like that. But is there other alternatives? How practical are they? If we are, if we do decide to go and do some burning, what are the appropriate areas? Like what habitat types? Uh, what size areas should we be burning? 
Uh, what time of the year should we be burning at? Um, uh, these are all the, the questions we should be asking. Also, if you're going to burn a site, like unless you have some uh, long-term plan for it, too, too often now we see these sites and these areas where you get a big fire comes across and nothing much happens to it for the next 10 years or eight or 10 years and suddenly we have a big fire again. Like, if we're going to go and uh, do these controlled burning um, manage these habitats. We have to have a long-term plan and that involves getting stock back in again and to try and retain it, maintain it, that we don't need to be going on in cycle because particularly if you're talking about something like gorse, if you go in and burn gorse now, what's going to go, go back after it? Well, even more gorse. So if you burn it, if you don't do some other uh, interventions in the meantime, eight, 10 years, it's back fit to be burned again. So look, at that's that's what we should be um, focusing our attention on. Um, so look, at uh, controlled burning, a kind of, I don't know what that means anymore. It means different things to different people. So kind of the term I really like is prescribed burning. Uh, and it's where it's like a prescription. So you go out, you determine where it should be, the need for it, where it should be done, how it should be done and all that. And it's about a lot, lot more than just lighting a fire. The problem is that it's too easy to go out, light a fire. It covers a vast area, 50, 60, 100 hectares. Our gorse or our header is controlling that for the next five or six years. We don't have to, to do anything with it zero cost so it's very very hard to argue with that but uh, sorry for going a little bit of a rant but i think we do have to change the narrative of what we're talking about and talk about the issues rather than just concentrating on dates all the time so just moving on now, i suppose to talk a bit about the grazing and that uh it should be no surprise to people like that uh over centuries grazing has is what's formed our habitats they are our habitats and the uplands they're not natural habitats if we didn't have uh, human intervention uh they wouldn't be like they are and the grazing is the main thing that has contributed to that so it should be no surprise to people then that uh, it's our main management tool going forward. The um, upland farming systems are not profitable. Uh, again, I was just looking at the National Farm Survey and in 2020, I think the, the net income from hill farming was uh, minus one euros and 21, it was something like four euros. Uh, it's probably going to be even lower again now in 2022 when the figures come out. So look, there is no big profit from the livestock in those areas. Um, Grazing management has changed dramatically over the past 50 years or so. And I suppose when you see the previous point that it's not profitable in keeping the stock, obviously that's going to have an effect on, effect on how the uh, farmers are, are managing it. But the types of sheep, the types of stock, when they're on it and all that, that has changed a lot. There's a lot of issues up in the uplands which can't be solved by grazing because a lot of people out there think that, oh, sure, if the farmers went out and did their job right, if they managed it right and graze it, that that would solve everything. But it's not. There's an awful lot of issues up there that can't be solved by grazing. We need other interventions. And even when we're talking about the, the scrub uh, or the, the gorse and the header type areas, that grazing alone will never solve them. We do need something on a, a sort of a, some sort of a, a regular basis to come in, burning, cutting or something else to keep that vegetation under control. So it's not all about grazing. Sheep breeding has changed, particularly in the east of the country, because people are putting the sheep up on the hills for less time of the year. It has made sense for them over the years that their sheep have got more accustomed to, to lowland. Their, the, the money or the profit from the sheep farming was in output. So uh, it, it made sense to them for to have uh, sheep that produce more lambs and um, bigger quality or better quality lambs. Unfortunately, those sheep now are probably less suitable for grazing up on the mountains. Uh, cattle and horses uh, have virtually disappeared off most of the hills. We did reintroduce uh, cattle on a number of sites and that, and our ecologist looking at it, she thought that they were doing great work in terms of they provide different uh, type of grazing and walking and trampling, and they were doing a great job for the managing the habitats. Just in terms of, this is a, a general was, ha, uh, grazing pattern for our, most of our hills here in the east, and 
most of the year here, you see there's very little stock on it. The middle of the summer, there's way too many, uh, too many stock on it here in this July, August, September period, and nothing on it for the rest of the year. And that has implications for what type of uh, uh, vegetation and what areas of the hills that the sheep and that are grazing. So, um, in terms of recommendations, then I suppose I have kind of summed it up into four key areas that we need to get right for our upland grazing. Uh, kind of the four R's uh, I was calling them. The first thing is the right type of stock and. I suppose number one priority here, we have to have animals that will survive and thrive on the hill. Like there's no point putting big soft lowland sheep up on the hill that's going to die up there. So they have to be the right type of stock. Second thing is animals that will provide the right type of grazing, whether that be cattle or sheep or horses, uh, the, whatever the habitat needs. If we have something like Molinia or that, sheep don't graze it terribly well, whereas if we can get cattle into those type of um, uh, areas, they'll do a much better job. Uh, stock that can contribute to a viable farm income. Look, at, I've said that they're not very uh, profitable, this uh, hill sheep or hill farming enterprises, but we still need to be able to do them as uh, efficiently as possible. The right numbers of stock, again, this is a very difficult one to get right. And uh, hand on heart, I'd say I, don't, I can't tell you what the right number of sheep for any hill is. How do we know? In the past, we tried to do a sitting down looking at maps based on habitats, uh, types and stuff like that. But what, what we found is, uh, the most practical way of figuring out is we went out with our colleges, we looked at the hill, we looked at all the um, the different areas of it, what condition it's in, and depending on what the issues are up there, then how do we move from there? So is this hill undergrazed? Then we know we need to increase our grazing. Is, is it overgrazed or is it being grazed at the wrong time of the year? So it's something just go out there to look ahead and then to try to, to manage uh, or move forward from there. In order to do that, we need to know what's happening up there at the minute. And too often in the past, when farmers are uh, producing uh, records and stuff like that, it uh, ends up that farmers just put in um, what they were supposed to do. So we don't really know what's happening up on the hills. So figure out what, what's happening at the minute and then try and move from there. The right time of the year is very, very important and it's a big issue for us because the reality is the stock eat different things at different times of the year. If we have sheep uh, up there on the hills in the early part of the summer or the late part of winter after Christmas and that, they really eat that uh, tougher course of vegetation like heather and that, mainly because there's nothing else up there, but also after frost and stuff, it does become a bit more palatable. Late summer, uh, the middle to late summer, they go and they eat the grassy areas and they'll die on those grassy areas. They'll graze them out of the route without ever moving into the other areas around them. So uh, the, time, the, the time of the year that the sheep are on the, or the stock are on the hill does determine what they're going to eat. Also, if we want them to graze that millennia, we do need to have them up there in the early part of the summer before it gets too tough. The final R here is the right areas of the hills. And I, I showed you that slide there earlier where uh, we had both overgrazing and undergrazing on the same hills. So we do need to get them to graze the right areas of the hills. We have another issue here because these hills are not fenced in that, that somebody is supposed to be putting up a hill or stock out onto the hill. But the reality is sheep go out over the hill and they could be grazing a mile or two miles away. So look, at we do need to have some control over what areas of the hill the sheep are grazing. Uh, so that's just in terms of the, 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 the key issues around grazing. And the bottom line for me is we have to reward the people who are uh, delivering this grazing. Uh, there's no point in trying to, I suppose, uh, put out payments there. And some people do nothing on the hill. Some people put no stock up and they're getting equal uh, share of the payments and that. That's very disheartening for those who are trying to actually do it right. So, so it is. So I 100% believe that we have to put the money in and reward those who are delivering what we want. In terms of habitat management actions then, Look, at, I said before, we need to do this at a, a landscape level because uh, what happens on one site, uh, whether it be a or non-commage area, can have implications on other areas in that. 
You can't look at individual actions in isolation either because uh, in the example I showed you there earlier, if we go in there to try and just tackle uh, that overgrazing or that undergrazing on some of those areas, and the obvious thing there is increased stock numbers and all the rest, but more than likely that's just going to, if you look at it that simple, it, it will make the problems of the overgrazing on those areas worse. So we do have to look at it as, as a total package of what we're doing in total, not just pick and choose, oh, we like this action, we go and do that. No, we have to look at them all uh, as a package together. Now, in dealing with farmers, I have found that there is a difference in the way farmers look at these uh, actions in terms of what's actions for stock management uh, versus actions for just pure habitat management. And the difference, I suppose, is that the ones for stock management, they see direct benefits to themselves. They see improved grazing for their sheep. They see easier access to get out there. They see uh, bracken or gorse control. So they can see direct benefits from it. But some of the ones, say, for habitat management, they don't see the same um, uh, direct benefit. If we're talking about re-wetting or blocking, gully blocking, stuff like that, it's very long-term uh, benefits out of that. And look at, um, I suppose, it's easier to get farmers to do the ones that they see direct benefits to them in the short term. Big thing we've, we've discovered is, look at, on the vast majority of uh, sites, paying their farmers for their time is not sufficient. So some places it is, but the vast majority is not. So uh, just because we, we have a, a good payment rate there for farmers to go out in the hill and do stuff, uh, the people who we are looking to go up to the mountains to actually carry out this work, uh, what we find is that most of them are either working full-time or part-time off-farm, or if not, to have enough work going on in the lowland areas. So uh, as I say, they're probably giving up time or they're giving up uh, income in their employment to go up on the hills. So just paying them for it is not sufficient incentive enough. We do have a need for specialised contractors because look, there's certain things that farmers are uh, unable or maybe not uh, willing to do up on the hills. I'm thinking there in terms of things like spraying bracken or uh, even uh, coating or mulching uh, header and gorse and stuff like that. And we, we do need to have uh, some sort of specialist contractors and we should be supporting that because if we think of it in a lowland setting, if a farmer wants to cut silage, he doesn't have a mower, he doesn't have a bale or whatever. So what does he do? He goes and gets a contractor to do it. And it's the same in the, up in the uplands. The, the, what we should be looking at up here is what does the hills need what actions do we need to be carried out okay if, if the farmer can't carry them out himself himself or herself well then we have these contractors that the farmer can hire in to do that work for them uh, we need to develop 10 to 15 year management plans uh, i know our rdp programs are short term and we tend to end up with five-year um, um, agri-environmental schemes and that but it doesn't matter we need to be looking at the management in the uplands uh, in terms of 10 at least 10 to 15 years because things happen slowly and uh, we we don't want to rush things up there just to kind of give you a little bit of an example here this is the site i showed you earlier with that uh, overgrazing and undergrazing issue there was a aerial photograph taken in 2016 you can see these little cuts up here they were actually done in the spring of 2016 because we had planned to do a controlled burning uh, workshop up there. And uh, the workshop went ahead, but there was snow on the ground and it was lashing rain. So we didn't get any burning done, but that's when the cuts was done. Uh, but as a result of that, the farmer on the site in 2000, uh, late 2017, early 2000, sorry, late 2016, early 2017, he got somebody, a contractor in with a mulcher uh, to cut uh, some of the header. Now, I suppose looking at here, you can see that he was probably most interested here in providing protection for forestry area here. Uh, but again, it showed that it could be done. Now, when this site came into the Suez project uh, in 2019, we planned to go up there and do controlled burning. So again, coming back to this controlled burning, we wanted to do relatively small areas. If you want to find the burning in small areas, how do you do it? So we had to cut some sort of uh, fire lines in the um, header to be able to control the fires within that. Uh, 
another point here, just um, I suppose learning from the lessons of what happened here with the cutting. Uh, when these areas were cut, uh, as they started to recover, the sheep were all sucked into those areas and there was massive overgrazing and it took a long time for those areas to recover. So rather than say starting at one corner here and working our way out the mountain, what we wanted to do with the, the, the controlled burning and the management was spread it out throughout the whole uh, area of the tall vegetation so that we keep the stock going through it. Uh, we did get a bit of control burning done here in 2019, uh, but 2020 proved a very difficult spring. We didn't get any done, but we were so impressed with the way the, work, the cutting had worked out that we got a bit more cutting done here in 2020. And again, uh, as time went by in 21 and 22, we got more cutting and a few more bits of burning. And again, it's just to kind of show you that, look at it's, it's what happens over time. We're not going to go up there in the mountain and, and solve all our problems one day. We, tem- we tend to think as lowland farmers now. We think of if we have a field of grass uh, and it's, it's gone bad, it's not producing. We go in, we spray off the whole field, we plough, till it uh, and uh, solve all our problems in one day. But up in the uplands, look, it's appropriate that we should be doing it over time because as we do the different cutting at the different times, that will give us a mosaic of different age headers and different structure in that over time. So look at Long term, think long term, not uh, it's different to the lowlands uh, and at least 10 to 15 years uh, for our plans. This is just another area. And again, it's a different way to uh, approach the, the issues. This is a really rocky area, it's very steep here and it uh, runs down here to forestry. And the farmers on this, they approached us to said, oh, they were very worried about fires and stuff like that. So could they put in a, a fire break along here that if there was a fire broke out that it would protect the forestry here just underneath it. Now, I'll be honest, when people start talking about fire breaks, for me, that rings alarm bells because a lot of the times I think that if we go and put in fire breaks, it just makes it easier to go out and do the burning. So we, we talked to them and we came up with a, a kind of a, a different solution. And what we said was, rather than spending the money here on the, the, the fire break, we spend an equivalent amount of money going in to do some cutting on the hill. So what we did was we got in a team of contractors with brush cutters and they went around and started cutting out patches of the, the header. Uh, again, it worked very, very well, and we brought them back again, so we've actually even more done. Now, in terms of fire, what is that doing for it? Well, I suppose the first thing is it's reducing the fire load here because it's uh, cutting down the vegetation, so it's reducing that. The second and most important thing that that does here is uh, it reduces reduces the pressure on people going up there to burn that because suddenly we have work going on. Uh, farmers can see that there is going to be some vegetation coming back on it, and if we continue this over the next number of years, over the next five, ten years, keep getting bits done, there's no need for farmers to go up and light it. So on one hand, we're, we're um, reducing the of fire if it does come along but the big thing is we're reducing the pressure on people to go up there and light those fires okay so just uh, i suppose recommendations then look at farmers need to be involved in developing plans uh we need to talk to them uh one of the big things all, all the farmers came back to us uh, in the sewers to say was that they were delighted to be able to uh, that somebody came and asked them and they were able to, to say have an input into the into their plans I'm not saying that they changed what we were doing or anything else but they were really really appreciated being asked about it we need an incentive to farmers to carry out the actions. As I said earlier, that the um, uh, paying them for doing the actions alone is not sufficient, that we need something more than that. Uh, we need to support farmers to carry out the work. And that's not just about uh, in terms of uh, money. It's not fi- all about financial. We need people to be able to talk to them, to, to, to advise them on what to carry out as well. 
And for me, this is one of the big things that kind of uh, shouldn't be overlooked. You do actually need somebody to follow up to make sure agreed actions are actually carried out. Now, we're all busy, like farmers, no different than anybody else. And it's one thing to sit down and uh, drop a plan and put a number of things on it. But the year kind of tends to slip by quickly. And uh, what I found was, and uh, talking to some of the other uh, projects is similar, that you do need someone to give them a ring, say, look at uh, what's happening here, where are we at? Uh, sometimes on individual sites, you get one or two people who are very enthusiastic and they'll do it themselves. But you do have to have somebody to follow up just to make sure that those are all be actually carried out. Just a, a small note here on habitat score payments, because look, within acres, that's the main new uh, uh, method of uh, calculating payments and stuff. We introduced it in 2020 because we saw a need for it. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that our score system was correct, Ryan, but it, it served a purpose for us. Uh, when we think about sc uh, habitat scores, I suppose we think about a score over a whole site. Now, this is just one of our sites that we have. Uh, there's 370 hectares in it. And using the hour scoring system, now it's not like the acres one or anything, but uh, we came up with an average score at 3.25. And it's all the same. Now, my, problem, my, my fear with that is it hides so much underneath. When we actually did it, we uh, broke the scores down uh, and we scored individual areas uh, in, like separately. So as you can see straight off here, the green areas are good areas, the brown and orange areas are uh, kind of in between and red areas. So look, if we apply a single score over a whole site, we can mask all those other things in, in uh, within that, both the good things and the bad things. Um, so just want to be wary of that. A few other just comments, I suppose, about the habitat score payments and our experience of them. We need to reward people who are delivering the management on the colleges. And uh, I, I said it earlier there, just in terms of the grazing, that uh, the people who are going up and doing it, uh, doing the work, if they see other farmers who are not doing anything, they're not putting any stock to the hills, they're not contributing anything, and they're still getting paid uh, on uh, for, for the hills. And it was a, a big issue we found on a couple of sites where there was people sitting back, they were getting big payments out of it and doing nothing. So within the Suez project, uh, we went and we asked those commonage farmers, particularly a problem on the, on the commonages, but we asked the commonage farmers themselves to come up with it. How do we divide out the money? Not one of them come back with the solution to say it should be based on what area you're putting on your BPS farms. Now, I know it's a little bit more complicated and it's hard to come up with one right answer for every commonage in the whole country, but I think that there is a scope there to go to talk to farmers and to work towards getting a better system of payment. As I say, it's about rewarding the people who do what you want or deliver what you want them to deliver. Uh, obviously, I suppose people are well used to hearing this one now. Once you start capping payments, you remove incentives. So if there's no chance to get any more payments, people are not going to move. Uh, this is a, a one thing that we had discussed in our operation group, and we did not necessarily come to the same uh, come to agreement on it, uh, and that's fine. My personal thoughts on it is that we have national targets that our uplands should be in favourable condition. So I think that favourable condition should be the minimum target for all our agri-environmental schemes. Now, it doesn't mean that there has to be in it going forward, but if habitats are in a condition below this, then it should be a basic requirement that they are working towards. They are doing those actions that he's going to deliver improvement. And what we found within the Suez project, every single site we had did work to improve the quality of their uh, site. It might have uh, resulted in improved score payments, but they were all moving in the right direction because that was a basic requirement. And as I say, for me as project manager, that's I feel strongly on that. It's not everybody's uh, opinion though. Uh, one of the big questions I have about these uh, habitat score payments and ORBAPs is 
how do we get from a habitat score to farmers actually delivering a management plan? Now, I'm, I'm sure the whole cooperation projects will come up with scorecards and they'll train people up and it'll be no problem to go out and do very good uh, and accurate scores for the, the, the hills and that. But how do we jump from there to farmers doing an actual plan? Who's going to go out there and meet the farmers? Who's going to sit down uh, and talk to them uh, and come up with these plans? And then keep an eye on to make sure all this work is done. I think we have this kind of uh, notion that, oh, sure, farmers will be getting increased score payments. So that they're going to be coming forward. They're going to be coming out of the woodwork looking for to, to apply for these actions. I have to say, in my experience, no, uh, we do need somebody sitting down there talking to the farmers and pushing them along and uh, to get this work done. Okay, just uh, almost there now, but uh, uh, farmer training required. Um, in the first uh, tranche, we, we brought our ecologists and we went for a walk out in the hills with the farmers themselves. And look, we thought we'd done great uh, because we had great conversation. The farmers were very uh, appreciative and all the rest. But what we found after time was, look, our discussions were limited by... Um, what we saw on the day. So if, if we walked out across dry heat area, we talked about that. If we walked out across an area that had been burned, we talked about that. So if we didn't see it, we didn't actually talk about it. And the other thing was that what Faith and myself maybe was talking about sometimes, the farmers weren't exactly hearing the same thing. And I suppose maybe part of that has to do with uh, the language involved and all that. So uh, what we did then were our last tranche of farmers was we put on a specific training course for them. It was a two-day course. We brought them inside one day and uh, went through what habitats were, all the basics, talked about habitats, water quality, trees, uh, stock management, all that. And the next day we brought them out to walk out on a site. One of the hardest problems with these training courses is finding somewhere in good condition to, to bring the farms to show them. Because the reality is a lot of them, they're used to seeing their own hills, but they've never seen what these habitats should actually look like. What, and nobody's ever explained it to them either, I suppose, that this is what we're aiming for, this is what it should like, this is what we want. Um, again, just talking to our uh, discussion, or our operation group on that, we came up with the discussion, you know, about the difference between training and education. And look, at, I'm from Chagas. Chagas can try training courses, absolutely no problem. And uh, But are we actually educating the, the farmers? What's the, or what is the difference? I suppose training is just giving them facts and figures and information, whereas education is trying to give them an appreciation uh, and an understanding and uh, to try and change attitudes. And that's not something that's going to ha happen uh, very fast. And I suppose, what, what, how, how do we, like, uh, what can we do to educate these farmers? Uh, I suppose we do need more uh, intervention. We probably need more little courses and that. But the big part of the education, what farmers take in is somebody walking that hill with them, talking to them. Their planners, their uh, advisors, somebody going, seeing other farmers, other hills, what do they have, and talking to other farmers. So just, I suppose, when we talk about education, like just dropping a few uh, training courses here and there into schemes, and you do one now, and that's it. That's that's not what education is. And I suppose uh, at the end of the five years, um, I was a bit disappointed, uh, maybe not surprised, but like we would have worked very closely with some farmers, and particularly around the whole area of burning and the alternatives and the options and all that. And at the end of the five years, some individuals, they still haven't changed. Look, at uh, it's very hard to change some people. I suppose you'll never change everybody's uh, opinion to that. But it's a long-term thing, and it's uh, something we need to maybe think a bit more about. It's not all just about a few training courses. Uh, on the advisory side, then... Um, we do need advisors. It's very easy to get advisors to talk to farmers about managing grass and growing more grass and silage and all that. But what we need is advisors who are able to talk to the farmers about habitat management, the different actions that, that, that you can do, the, the way you manage the habitats. Not, it's not 
just talking here about doing scorecards, coming up with scores. I'm talking about how you get out there, uh, how you do the mulching, the cutting, the control burning, the gully blocking, but also those advisors have to be able to talk to the farmers about animal management. You know, how, how do we manage those stock? How do we get that those uh, that hill farming system? That has to be hinted to the rest of the lowland farming system as well. So we need advisors. Now, we do have uh, uh, some of them scattered around the whole country, like, but we need to build there that if we are serious about getting these farmers to manage these hills better, we do need advisors to back them up and be able to support them and talk to them. And just the final slide here I have then, just to, to build on that as well, how do we get farmers to learn in that? Like, traditionally Chicago's like demonstration sites bring them to open days walks and, and uh, talking to farmers so we need to do the same with our uplands we need to have some sort of uh, demonstration sites here for those uh, things the farmers not used to like farmers don't know what gully blocking is bracken bruising uh, the spilling along the, the watercourse all that uh, we, we need to have somewhere that we can show them and explain to them and let them go and see and similarly for, I suppose, for the farm management because m- most of our research and advice is, is centres around uh, when the stock are not on the hill. Uh, so how do we manage our sheep before we go to the hill? How do we manage the lambs to, when they come off of it? And we need to put more focus on managing the stock while they're actually out there. Like we introduced the cattle there and we have the, you can see a picture there with the, just the GPS collars on them for because we weren't able to fence them. Uh, the breeding is an issue. And even in the bottom corner here, you see some of the, those red things there in the header we were using feed buckets to number one to keep the sheep out on the hill there in that period after christmas but also to encourage the sheep into certain areas of grazing so that's just some of the needs that we have from the the sewers project i'd like to take this opportunity just to thank our operation group like it was a great group of people to work with it was all very positive and looking for looking forward to see what we can learn and the special mention then just also for the farmers because when we started talking and i was telling them about these uh, communist groups and all this like they really took a, a leap of faith with us and without the farmers coming forward uh, i don't think sewers could have happened so thanks very much mark and compliments to Declan as well. I mean, obviously, this project wouldn't uh, have been successful without good leadership from yourself. So, so well Thanks. done on that. Um, so, this is like a, the confessional. Nearly after five years, <laughs> you have um, you you have obviously come up with some really excellent uh, recommendations there, and a really good example of cooperation amongst uh, farmers and the various different stakeholders. And I know there's a lot of interest in this project from 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 uh, stakeholders outside of Ireland as well. Um, we, we have quite a number of questions coming in, Declan, just around the, I suppose, the, the management, and we have the same discussion around the burn about, you know, farming these areas versus allowing them to maybe uh, naturally regenerate. Uh, there's some suggestions coming in. Why, why not consider native woodland uh, planting in some of these areas as well? Uh, what would your response be to that? Okay, uh, well, I suppose nationally our uh, responsibility is to retain the habitats that are up there. So uh, that's the first thing I say. And the peatland or the heatland habitats, they're not native, they're not natural habitats. If we remove grazing, they change. So if if like um, if we want to retain our heat and uh, peatland habitats, we do need some management. Now, having said that, there are certain areas. Uh, that I think uh, could quite easily be left to go on developing to native woodland, not not like not not native woodland, I suppose, because people have this idea about native woodland that's a forestry scheme and you go out and you plant trees and all that. But in certain areas, particularly those areas where are very very difficult to access, there's issues there that farmers are not able to deal with. Like they're very rocky, they're steep, there's a lot of bracken or gorse or stuff on it, and they're constantly fighting the losing battle. Maybe some of those areas should be allowed to. Uh, just go on, develop on naturally, and they will develop naturally themselves into woodland. But I think the, the, 
the woodland that will develop up there is not like what we see in planted forestries, even from the native woodland scheme, like that's very much planted. Uh, as the trees and that develop themselves, it's a different type of habitat. And I think there is a place for it, particularly if we're talking about um, national tar- targets for uh, planting trees, rather than going planting good lowland, getting farmers down there. Some of those, those areas that are so difficult, why would we spend money on trying to retain them in heathland when maybe some of those areas could be allowed to develop into woodland? I think there, there is a place. It's not the solution for everywhere, and it's probably small areas on different sites that's appropriate. I uh, had the opportunity to travel up to uh, County Antrim last week and met colleagues from CAFRI. Uh, Brian Irvine was uh, showing us the work that they were doing on the Glen Whirry farm. And they seem to have a, quite a focus on uh, carbon sequestration and, uh, you know, worked there to try and promote the uh, the, the the peat production and, and you know, that that type of uh, work was going on. And I, I noticed you, you did mention gully blocking. Was that one of the objectives of the project or was that considered you know around that that uh, that piece of carbon sequestration okay um you can't look at things in isolation like it's, it's not carbon sequestration versus sheep farm and versus biodiversity if you, what's good for one thing is good for them all that's that's the first thing now uh, in terms of carbon sequestration uh, i suppose we're not quite sure how much has been locked up up there or not. But the first big thing that we need to, uh, to tackle is the erosion issue. Because on a lot of our hills, on wet days, you can see the colour of the water coming off the mountains. It's brown colour. You can see it in the, 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 the waterfalls and that. So uh, we have a huge amount of carbon already locked away up there. So our first priority should be to retain that carbon up there. The gully blocking that we were doing up there, that was the first part of that was to, to stop further erosion, to stop the, the peat running off of it. Over time, if we can stop that erosion, our next step would be that if we can uh, get it back wet again, because I suppose the only areas in the uplands who are locking up carbon are where are locking up carbon. They're the wet areas. So you have to keep them damp. They have to be soft and spongy on your feet. It's those spiking mosses you need to do the job. Any of the areas you're walking across, if the ground is hard under your feet, look, you can take it for granted nearly that the carbon has been lost out of those areas. But first priority for us is stop the erosion, stop what's flowing off of it, and then gradually work towards uh, wet, getting those areas back wetter and start to sequester more carbon. Great. Thanks, thanks, Declan. And we'll, we have a, obviously a huge, huge amount of interest in, in this topic, uh, judging by the numbers we have here today. Catherine, some really good questions coming in as well. From yeah, the some very interesting ones, and you've covered the trees ones there. Um, do you have a view on who should lead um, on an upland strategy? But sure, it's it's so many like uh, there's six uh, government departments and like there's no point in one pointing the finger at the other like when we brought out the power of agriculture uh, and uh, national parks and wildlife service like they're two different government departments one is saying well this is not really our responsibility the other is saying well we don't really have the funding like it, it has to be joined up thinking from the top uh, so um, as regards picking one one the government department or that like no it, it has to be across that and whether it be a new group or new organization or whatever i don't care like but just all the government departments has to be feeding into it and uh yeah yeah very good Um, just a quick uh, a couple of management ones there can you can you tell us how stock can be directed to the right areas do we need shepherds out there okay um for us the shepherd and we thought this was going to solve a lot of problems it didn't actually work out Farmers didn't buy into it because they like to go look at their own sheep. Like we 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 made a payment to say one individual farmer on a commonage that they would go up and they would move around the uh, everybody's sheep and keep an eye on. But farmers wanted to go up and look after their own sheep. They, they didn't want somebody else putting the dog after their sheep, moving to the wrong areas of the hill and that. Uh, okay, 
how do you keep the sheep on the hills? One of the things is the uh, time of the year that they're grazing, because if if uh, you have them on at, the, at over the winter time, they will go into the, the header areas. If you just put them up during the summer, they'll stay in the grassy areas. Second thing is having the right type of stock. A lot of people put sheep up in the hills and they, they stand outside the hill ditch, uh, waiting, roaring, looking for someone to open the gate to let them into a fresh field of grass because the sheep are not used to it. They're not bred for it. So the right type of stock, stock once you let the stock out, they should rise and go off themselves. In terms of controlling them on the areas, the second thing is, uh, I know in Wales they talk about it, the, the white wall on the hill, that's how you stop the sheep. So your sheep keep moving until they meet the sheep on the next hill and that kind of stops them. If there's no sheep on the next hill, your sheep will keep going out. So, the more sheep that's on it, uh, it'll help to keep them in the right areas. Uh, we did use the feed buckets uh, to encourage them into areas of uh, tall vegetation, uh, rank or header and stuff over the winter. Worked quite well because once there was uh, the weather got a bit bad and there wasn't much else eaten, they did in, go into those areas. And I suppose the other thing um, in terms of the pictures I showed you there where we're doing the various cutting and that, um, we, we scattered the cutting right throughout the whole area because if we had started at one corner and cut cut there and worked away as we think about in the lowland you start from the bottom and you work your way up the whole hill that we would have sucked sheep into those new areas that were cut as they um as they were recovering whereas when we scattered those areas cut areas right throughout the whole uh, uh mountain that's given little um pockets of graze and fresh graze and to drag the sheep to keep drawing them out into those areas so there is various things like that that you can do. Uh, shepherding is a hard one because it's very time consuming, but there's other bits and pieces and it's very, given something to entice the stock into those areas is very, very important. It does work quite well. Can you I just told, gonna... Sorry, just a, a question yeah. there, Declan, around that long-term strategy requirement. I mean, that was something I picked up last week from our colleagues in the North. Now that they're not part of the, the common agricultural policy, it, it's, it's sort of changing their mindset in terms of thinking beyond the the, the five-year cycle and how how important that is. And uh, there's a comment in here from uh, a colleague in Connemara. Uh, she says, well done to Declan and the SUS team. Really agree with the points on training versus education. Also, the points on specialised contractors. This is the route we've taken in the North Connemara locally-led agro-environmental scheme with regards to rhododendron control, because Declan is correct about paying for farmers' time not being enough. And she also totally agrees uh, with, uh, uh, and well done on a great scheme. So just, yeah, you know, there's there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, concurrence there with your your comments around that, that need for. So yeah, it's good, good to see those comments coming through. Yeah, and lots of uh, positive feedback too, Declan. Uh, just can you can you clarify when you talk about favourable condition, favourable for what? That's uh, that's the faucet. That's the uh, I suppose it's the international um, method of assessing the, the the hills. I showed you the, the three colours. They're favourable, unfavourable, inadequate, and unfavourable bad. But, so, but I think it's 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 favourable for from a in, environment in, rather than favourable for farming. Uh, Is that yes, it? sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's just a term, maybe that we're yeah. starting to use, aren't we? And it's not. Um, yeah. But I think what you've clarified is that um, favourable for certainly for carbon and biodiversity and water quality. There's no conflict. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's the same thing. Like if if the habitats are in good condition, they're working, they're delivering all those services in terms of filtering water, slowing down the flow of water, locking up the carbon, uh, providing the different plants of biodiversity. Like it, it, they're all related. And look, at so sometimes I suppose maybe again, it's uh, farmers will say, ah, yeah, but sure. Like, well, 
put to this way, some farmers, are, their, their ideal for the mountain would be if they could have rye grass right to the top of it, you know, and we kind of do have to get farmers to sit back and think, well, no, it's not a grass hill we want. It is this mosaic and this is the way it was managed years ago and we need the right type of stock. You're not going to get big fat uh, lamb off those hills there ready to, to sell in August into the, the, the factories and that. You know, you have to plan your stock and your farming system around what's on the mountain. We can't bend the mountain to suit our modern way of farming in terms of, as I say, uh, big continental cattle and uh, big uh, yos rearing one and a half or 1.6 lambs to the yo. We have to we have to work with what's up there and we have to make our systems work with the the, the, the with the mountains rather than trying to make them work with us. Yeah. Have have goats been considered as somebody suggesting here that goats can be useful where the you know you've particularly dense uh, scrub areas? Yeah, well, well, there's nothing wrong with goats, like, but uh, again, if we if we say there's no income in or there's little or no income from uh, the sheep and the cattle up in the mountains, I think the, the where are we going to get these goats and who's going to manage them and what sort of a market is there for uh, goat meat and stuff like that? Uh, absolutely, they they can, but we we do have to have some sort of a system in place for to 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 manage them, and there's, there's no point in just putting them out there for the sake of it. Like we do have to be producing something at the other end of it. So yeah, if somebody has a market for uh, goats and that, and they can provide assist or they can provide the management, absolutely no problem. They're using them up in hot uh, for the management of the the hot head there, the gorse and that, no problem. But we do need farm systems to be able to cater for them and farmers to look after them. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, Declan, that's where the favourable status for the environment long term is favourable for the production that's cost effective up there. You know, for the would that be? Yeah, look, I suppose. Right. Yeah, the like the up the, the hills are a completely different farming system. Now, we, we, we for years in Wicklow, I know because I've been here, we had farmers trying to use one type of stock to graze the hills and produce good quality stock on the lowland and they ended up with a kind of a mix mix of both um an upland system it is a low input low output system and what happened to us in the past we were getting the low output from having the stock on the hills and we're putting in major inputs costing us a lot of money when it came down off the hills look at uh, I, I really like we have a few farmers now in wicklow here and uh they're going for split split flocks that they have a flock of sheep and their primary job is to go up there and graze the mountain and that and they have a different type of sheep then they run on the lowland big big lowland sheep that are going to get better crops of lambs but the upland is a specific farming system and we have to work with within that system we can't bend it like you know so um we work with the land that's up there and we have the right type of stock and system for it any comment on millennia we don't have huge issues of uh, or with millennia. Now, um, I will say sheep do eat millennia. Um, people say that they won't go near it. If the sheep is up on the hills, the biggest problem with millennia is there's no stock on the hills at the time of the year that uh, the millennia is uh, palatable. That's the early part of the summer. So that involves putting uh, yews and lambs or dry hoggets and stuff up in the early part of the summer to have them there. As the millennia grows, they will eat it. The other thing is the cattle. Cattle are doing a great job for us uh, on one of our sites. Uh, again, Faith, our ecologist, she was looking at where the cattle were going out through it. And we have to remember, I suppose, the cattle do two things. One is the graze, but also they're big animals. They cut it up and uh, little bits of poaching to have to open up for other uh, so or other plants and stuff to get in. So we don't have a major problem, but I would look towards grazing is the first thing, uh, or is the main control we have. And sheep will, but definitely cattle do a great job on it. And just on that, any particular breed of cattle? Uh, 
there was still it worked on in Scotland, and the best results they found on Melania was from uh, Charlie cattle. Why? Because they were the biggest, and they were doing the most breaking up. Now I can't imagine too many people putting big Charlie or Belgian blue cows on top of a mountain. So again, it comes back to the stock that live up there uh, and thrive up there. And we we've used different breeds. I didn't um, I didn't I wasn't prescriptive with the farmers when they asked me. I said, look, get something that won't die on it. That was the number one priority. And they're they're, they're using different breeds, and that's why have our suits locally at this stage. Now we have a couple of people putting well on one side. Now we have uh, Melinia and uh, the farmers putting up uh, dry suckler cows. He's autumn calving, and just there last year he started putting them up when they're dried off, putting them up there in the month of May. And uh, we haven't seen a huge amount of results from it yet, but he only started there. But it's just the idea. So it doesn't matter what type of stock they are, as long as they live on it, that's mm-hmm. the priority. Declan, we're, we're, we're coming close to the end of the, the webinar this morning, but I do just want to ask you about the next steps for the Suez project. Um, and, and obviously, you have accumulated a lot of knowledge and experience yourself over the, yeah. the past five years. Um, is there a risk that this, this could uh, fall into a hiatus uh, if, if uh, there isn't a kind of rapid response now after the, the end of the project? Yeah, I suppose some people are saying, oh, it's P.E. Suez finishing now and why can't we extend it out and all the rest? But no, look, the Suez was a five-year project. It was set up. Uh, our our purpose was to figure out uh, how we can support farmers. We, we've got out there, I think we've delivered on everything we said we'd do it, we, we would find out and probably more. So we have gathered together the experience, the learnings and stuff, and we have brought back these recommendations. Now, that's what we were supposed to do. We are delivering them back, and t- today's webinar is an, an excellent opportunity for me to, from Suez to deliver those lessons. Now, okay, I suppose it goes back to the various other government departments to act on them, but like the Suez project has delivered what it said it would. Mm-hmm. So what's the next step? So what would, what's the next step you'd like to see happen? But, uh, well, uh, like... People can talk about cooperation projects and good things and bad things, but the first thing I'll say about them is they're there for the next five years. Okay, now there is scope probably within the within those projects for us to for some of our learnings, particularly around the college groups and working with farmers and developing plans and stuff like that. It can be done through those cooperation projects, and uh, it's not about reinventing the wheel, like. Um, like I know people, it's easy to knock all these schemes, but like we should be trying to build what we have learned. Into, into the cooperation project and then when the next scheme comes around build further again on it like we're not going to solve it overnight but the the most important thing i think with any of these agri-environmental schemes is we have to get around the concept that we reward the farmers who's delivering the management that we want that's the they should be getting the money from it and uh that's that's the most important thing i think going forward thanks Declan. Uh, catherine any final comments uh, no, just uh, the very positive uh, comments, Declan, and uh, for very honest and, you know, addressing the issues. And uh, so extremely positive. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, Declan, huge, huge amount of comments uh, coming through to support the good work you're doing and uh, congratulate you on the uh, really fantastic project. And as I said, there's, there's lots of eyes looking at this project from, from afar as well as, as a successful uh, uh, multi-actor uh, project. So thanks for coming along this morning and, and sharing those those lessons with us. And uh, thanks, Catherine, so thanks, for, thanks, Declan, and thanks, Catherine, for helping out with questions. Uh, next week, we're going to be joined for, uh, by Dr. Maeve Henshin from Chagask, who is going to discuss the bovine project, uh, which looks at solutions for sustainable beef farming. So do join us next Friday for our webinar next uh, uh, next week. And uh, until then, have a good weekend and uh, we will uh, talk to you next week. 
You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.